Well, welcome to church today. I'm glad you guys are here with us, and I hope that you have had a chance to read the passages uh, that we're going to be looking at today um, in 1 Kings chapter 17 to 18. But before I jump into the text, I just wanted to share with you something good that's been happening this week that we've been dreaming and in conversations with, uh, with the youth pastors, the final two candidates that we've been looking at. And uh, we're going to launch this summer um, a youth summer internship. So let me explain it what it is, and you'll see what it is that's going to take place here. If you've got some of your youth between 13 and 17, and, and they're not quite sure what job they're going to do this summer, or what they're going to do for the whole summer because they're bored out of their heads, or, or they're just looking for something exciting or something different, we're going to offer an internship here where they come to the church and they work with us, either a morning shift or an afternoon shift, or the full time uh, for the whole summer with us. We're going to do tons and tons of different things from video creations that we'll do for the services, through to planning of events of all the one life through the summer, through to uh, the training that we're going to do that takes place with what we vision for the church here, including fixing the church up and doing all sorts of practical things as well. However, I know that in our congregation, we have tons of talented professionals who maybe you have the capacity this summer to say to us, hey, I could have a couple of youth come and shadow me for a day a week during the whole summer, or a morning a week during the whole summer. So if you are interested in helping us to mentor and to help our youth to be able to have some kind of ownership, to decide what they're going to do with their lives, then let us know and we'll work on that. But we're going to launch that this summer and we're excited about that. Of course, if you wish to donate to support that, you can by just putting it into the budget offering. See how I did that? I just brought the budget offering just like that. You didn't even realize it. And you were thinking, wow, that was, that was so fast. I was, I was like I was in Vegas. It's just, the cars just appeared and they went. So uh, yeah, remember the budget offering. Um, and as you leave, you can put them in the offering altars and uh, you can put them online, which is much faster. Or you could just do it every day. All right, so there we go. Uh, let's dive into the text then. First Kings chapters 17 and 18. Now, I'm going to test you out because we've been doing this for the last few weeks and we've only got three more weeks in this series and we're done with it. I can't believe it's been so fast going through Kings, but, but here we go. Um, where are the children of Israel right now? In the story. You're like, well, I got Google Maps. I mean, in the story. Where are the children of Israel in the story right now? Very good. Nobody knows. Exile. All right, so <laughs> they're in exile. And as they're in exile, remember, I stand over this side here. They're in exile, and they're saying, God, what are the two questions they're asking God? Did God abandon them, or did they do something wrong? I'm going to ask you this next week, okay? <laughs> this is just to prep you. Imagine I've said this four times, and now you should know. So they're asking that question. They're in exile. And of course, they look at the whole story all the way from Abraham, from Moses, and they look at the judges, and they look at the kings, and they're constantly seeing how God has this plan, and yet they don't like God's plan. And as they're going through the journey and they're coming to the kings, they're starting to understand a little bit about the choices that we as humans have made that resulted in all of them being in exile. Now, when you look at the story of Kings, you think maybe it's a history book, and you think to yourself, that's what it is. But in fact, it's much more than just a history book. It's supposed to transform you. It's supposed to make you think to yourself, how do I look at my identity in God differently when I look at this story? How do I understand that he hasn't abandoned me and that he's been with me, but we have made some really, really poor choices? 
And that's part of the story that we're in right now and where we get to in 1 Kings. So David, obviously, he passes away. Solomon, his son, becomes king. He prays for wisdom. Everybody used to love Solomon until this series came along. And then you discover with Solomon that he actually became a little bit off because he followed Greece and Egypt, and he felt that with Greece and with Egypt, he was going to become a great empire, and he did become the great united kingdom, huge, north and south, together with him. Everybody in the south and everybody in the north feared him, and he kept it together, but with his thousand wives, because of his ability to be able to say that I am a very virile guy, and I can definitely handle all of these and all the children that came with it, you can imagine what happened with that. They turned his head away from God, and he eventually started worshiping all sorts of other creatures, all sorts of other, as Sean had shown us, that, that weird-looking God, all sorts of other characters. And as he did this, he turned away from them and felt, ah, I'm not with God. And God said to him, the kingdom will be divided. And last week, we looked at the fact that the kingdom did get divided by his son, and there was a battle, and then you see for the first time, a prophet comes on the scene. You don't have a name just this old prophet with this false prophet. The old prophet was representing the kingdom where they were supposed to be combined and then they weren't combined and then they were together, dies and loses it and we get to the text that we're in right now. And the children of Israel in exile are reading this story, hearing this story and thinking, oh my goodness, I wish these kings had made better and better decisions, but no chance with that. So, the chapters that I skipped, because we don't have time for the series to be able to hit every single thing here, uh, chapters 15 and, and 16 here that I skipped, basically tells you that there was one king in the south, and he was king for 41 years. And during those 41 years in the south, in the north, they had seven kings, okay? Seven kings. One of the kings was there for seven days before he didn't become king anymore. So they had a huge turnover of kings. There was turmoil in the north with all the stuff. But here's the thing. The kings were not very good kings. It says in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25. Now, a um, couple of quick things here before we dive in the text. We have Bibles in the pews. If you want, you can take those Bibles out. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, if you have your own Bible, that's great. I really encourage you to bring a physical Bible rather than digital Bible, uh, only because with a physical Bible, you can write in it. And when you write in it, you can put all your notes inside there, you can write everything, and you can put all the cross-text that we're going to do. We're going to fly through Scripture back and forth all over the place today, but I want you to encourage you to do that. You can take those Bibles with you, uh, you can write in them and just put them back in the pew, or you can take them home and you can share them with somebody else. But that's what the Bibles are there for. So 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, chapter 16, first of all, page 205, page 205. I also want to make sure that everybody has a worship guide. And we've got some deacons who can help us out with that. Uh, a worship guide, you're all going to need one of these. So if you don't have a worship guide, you can put your hand up. Pastor Jessica, um, welcome back. Glad you don't have a worship guide. She forgot already. All right, so there you go. No, we're not going to point you out like that. Did we do that in public? It's great. All right. Um, and over there, Thomas up here. That's great. And in the center as well, next to Ron, there's a distinguished gentleman with a rather silver beard. I see you there. All right, that's good. That's good. All right, so good. You'll need the worship guide. We're going to go through some questions inside there. But we are in 1 Kings chapter 16, first of all, which is just going to set the scene just right so you understand where the story is going to take us, 1 Kings chapter 16, 25. 
Omri, this is the king in the north, all right? Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. <sighs> more than Solomon, more than Jeroboam, more than Rehoboam, more than any of the kings before him, Omri did evil inside there. And then Omri has a son. Skip with me down to verse 30. And Ahab, this is verse 30 of chapter 16, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Do you see that? It's not progressively good, right? I know we like to imagine that as generations go by, we get better and better. But clearly, in this case here, they just did worse and worse and worse. And we're going to find out a lot about Ahab and how he marries a certain lady called Jezebel. Everybody knows the name Jezebel, right? Nobody knows the name Ahab, but they know Jezebel, right? Why? Yes, you've got issues. So the story exists inside here, and the kings understand this, that it's getting worse and worse and worse. And all of a sudden, you're going to start to discover that the story moves from the kings to prophets. We're going to learn about a guy called Elijah, another guy called Mike, Micaiah, and then another guy called Elisha, three prophets, back to back, because the story is going to switch, because God is going to say, something needs to change when the kingdoms are getting so, so bad. And chapter 17 is a really kind of abrupt start to a story. There's no introduction. There's, it's not, it's unexpected. There's no invitation. It's just kind of like it just takes place right there. And there's a huge showdown between a guy called Elijah, who we don't know where he comes from, we don't have any idea of his history, and King Ahab, which kind of explains to you when you get to the book of Daniel, and we'll turn to Daniel right now, don't lose kings, let's go to Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, page 505 in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 1. And I've been reading Daniel because in the fall we're going to be doing a series on Daniel, so I'm I'm, I've been reading both Daniel and Kings as well here, but we're going to do a series in, in Daniel on this. But Daniel chapter 1, and look at the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1, which the children were in Israel, were in exile, would have understood this. And Daniel said this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And all the Israelites are like, yeah, yeah, I know he did that. He, he, I'm actually part of the problem, and I understand this. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now that they did not know. Don't lose Daniel, we'll come back to it, go back to kings. Here's the thing. They understand history because they're living it. They can see that the power has changed, but they don't understand that God has allowed Jehoiakim to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar until Daniel tells them, this is what is taking place here. Even in this huge showdown here, it makes sense now because you understand that they're only half engaged in the whole story here. Now, Elijah, his name means what? Does anybody know? God, he is my God. That's basically what it means. Elijah says this. With no backstory, nothing at all, we come to our very first question that we have, our recalibrate question, which I have inside here, and I want you to turn with me to that recalibrate question in your worship guide. What, when was the last time you had clarity from God about an action? When was the last time you had clarity from God about an action? Something where you just suddenly felt from God, God, I need to go talk 
to King Ahab and tell him a word or two. Something like maybe one day, Sunday night, you're sleeping and you wake up and you have a vision from God and he says, make an appointment, fly to D.C. and see President Obama and let him know what you really think God has told you to tell him. That's, that's the kind of thing. When was the last time somebody had that vision? When was the last time maybe you had a vision where you thought, I should just go visit Ed Barnett? He's the president of the Rocky Mountain Conference, and he covers all the churches in Colorado and Wyoming, and God has given me a message that I need to deliver to Ed Barnett. Maybe, maybe you had a vision one day where you were at, at Vista, Adventist Hospital, and then you suddenly God gave you a vision and said, I need to go see Dennis Bartz, and I need to lay it out to Dennis Bartz. That's what I need to do. Maybe that's what God has done to you. You had that kind of clarity, or maybe you thought to yourself one day, man, I'm going to go to Vista Ridge Academy, and I'm going to go see that Sandy Hodgson, that Sandy Hodgson, and I've got a message from God for Sandy Hodgson. Maybe God has given you that vision. Or maybe one day you woke up and said, oh, those elders and those pastors at Boulder Church, I'm going to give them an earload. I'm going to call them up, and I'm going to tell them what's what, because God has given me a vision. When was the last time you had, no, don't answer that one. Maybe it's not a vision. But that's the problem, right? It's what Elijah has. He has this vision. God's laid his hand on his heart, grabbed hold of it where he has nothing else but to go and confront him. And I tell you this, we need to have visions from God. We need to know when to stand up and when to be quiet. We need to know when to speak up and when to press forward. We need to know that God is with us in all that we do. And this Children in Israel, in exile, us today in Boulder, we need to understand what God is saying to us as well. And we need to pray for that. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. And this is what it says there. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Dun, dun, dun. And you're like, what? What? What's the significance of that? Well, obviously, they're living in the Middle East, kind of like Colorado. It's always dry out here. I had a friend of mine who just flew out of Colorado. Actually, Shelby Shotwell. You know, you guys know Shelby. She's not here this weekend. She was in San Francisco, I think, this weekend, and uh, she went for an interview. Engineers, what can you say? So she's got an interview. They're really excited about it, but she said, man, I miss Colorado, but boy, is it green here. Yes, I understand. I'm planning to paint the whole church green. Um, you'll come next Sabbath, you're like, well, that's environmentally friendly, I guess. <laughs> that's what we're going to do. By the way, uh, we should have my telephone number up there. I forgot to mention this. Thank you, Michael. If you have a question as we're going through this text here, or you've got an idea or something that's just bizarre, then text me, and it'll pop up, and I should be able to try and address that now or later on. We'll see how time goes through here. But they stop. They have this conversation, and it takes place by his word. And the problem is this. Baal, the, the other gods that they worship, that King Ahab worships, because that's what he did. As soon as he became king, he set up altars to Baal, to all the different types of Baals that they were. He was the god of fertility and growth. And so they were very excited about him because they thought, this guy produces rain. So, of course, God comes along and says, no more rain. 
Let's see. In fact, the Canaanite history records that their god, Baal, died for three and a half years, apparently, and then resurrected, and that's when the rain came back. That's what they do, because they couldn't explain why they had no rain inside there. But the problem is this. The king is supposed to take care of fertility. That's what his job is. He's supposed to make sure you're strong, and you can grow, and you can earn a living, and you can have rain for your crops, kind of like the president is supposed to take care of the economy. And when the economy doesn't go well, what do we do? Oh, we should change parties. Oh, we should change president. Everybody gets really upset about it. And then the next one comes along, and they don't take care of the economy. And what do you do? Oh, we should change parties. We should change. And that's all we do, cycle after cycle after cycle, hoping that somebody else will fix the problem that we're in control of. But here they are. They have no control over this particular problem. In fact, they look to the king, and they're upset about this. And then verse 2 says this, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is the east of Jordan. And so he disappears, and you read the story, and it says that ravens would come every day and bring him bread. And then he had a little creek there with some water, and he was able to drink the water. And what this story is telling you is this. At this point right now, this guy Elijah is living outside of the king's authority. He's living outside of the powers that try to control and to chase him. He's living in a totally vulnerable place, relying on God, trusting on God that God will provide for him. And he's really excited about this. So that's why I wanted you to stay in Daniel, because let's go back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. There's a great story inside here, and I don't want to tell you too much about it, but you probably know this well. And we often use the story in Daniel chapter 1. That's back on page 505, right? Daniel chapter 1, and it says down there in verse 20, you remember Daniel comes along and says to the guy, hey, I'm not going to eat the food, the unclean food, give me the healthy food, and by the end of the day, you can test me, the end of the days, you can test me, verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the thing, when we look at that story, we often focus on the diet we focus on the health message behind there, but there's something deeper inside the story. He chose to trust God. That's what he did. Just like Elijah, he chose to trust God. God will provide for me. Just like Abraham went up the mountain, he chose to trust God. God will provide for him. And we need to be on that place as well where we can say God will provide for us. Well, Elijah lives just like John the Baptist did in Mark chapter 6 and 1. And you'll see there that he lived out in the wilderness, relying on God to provide for him. And then verse 7 comes along. And after a while, the brook dried up because, and this is deep, there was no rain in the land. Like, duh, really? But don't you think that God could have like made the little puddle of water just come up and just water like a little tap and a faucet and he could just turn it on and just have drinking water all the time? Do you think that God could have done that? Yes, is the answer. You're like, I don't know. Is God capable of providing water in the desert? Ooh, yes, is the answer. He could do that. And sure enough, he chose not to do that. Why not? Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him and he said, thirsty? Yes. I'm thirsty? Well, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, what you don't know, maybe you didn't pick up, is that Sidon is the city that Jezebel comes from. Oh, Elijah, I know you're comfortable where you are, but I want you to pack up, 
get out of this city here and travel all the way to Jezebel's hometown. And I want you to start working your stuff inside our hometown. Because all those people there, they worship Baal. But you, Elijah, you worship me. So go now to Jezebel's hometown. Because where is she? She's in Israel causing problems for everybody. Let's go cause a little bit of problem inside her territory as well. Now, the widow is very significant for us, and you've got to know this. We're reading the story, obviously, with hindsight, and they get it. They're in exile. But when you get to the life of Jesus coming down where God says, hey, I'm going to go, and I'm going to actually demonstrate to people, live with them, and be part of them. I've got to show them and restore the character of God to humanity because they've got such a skewed image of this. Jesus comes to the planet, and he lives down here, and he makes reference to Elijah and to lots of stories, and he picks up in particular, stories from the First Testament. Because here's the fact. The First Testament is all that Jesus had. So if you are one of those Christians who says, you know what, I love the Gospels, I love the New Testament, but I really don't like the, what they refer to as the Old Testament or I refer to as the First Testament. It's just so bloody and messy and ugly and I don't like that God. I like the God over here who's gushy and lovey and it's like, you're like a liar king basically. And, and, and so that's fine, right? God is saying that he himself, Jesus, used the first testament to teach the gospel, right? That's all he had. And he found the gospel on the road to Mass. He found the gospels in the scripture. That's all he had. And then they wrote the second testament. So here he is. He's saying to them, listen, there's a great story, and it's found in Mark chapter, where is it here down here? Mark chapter 12, 40 to 44. And I want you to just jump over this, page 586. Mark chapter 12. Again, what I do in my Bible, and I encourage you to do this in your Bible as well, is to mark the text, to write down the reference, to make your own cross-references between here. So my Bible and Mark, it tells me, hey, look at 1 Kings chapter 17. You can do the same as well. So when you're reading your Bible, you start to see that it's all together, one beautiful book here. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money to the offering box, many rich people in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small coins. Of all the stories, of all the points that he could have shared, he chose the widow. And the reason he chose the widow is because he's trying to say to them, listen, of all the people in Israel, widows were the lowest. They were treated poorly. Hence, the laws in Deuteronomy. Did you hear that sentence? The laws in Deuteronomy that we don't like to read, that we don't like to talk about, were good for you, (laughs) said, take care of the widows. And so Elijah, understanding this, goes over to take care of the widows. Question number two inside our recalibrate questions here is this. Who are the widows today that need your help? Obviously, you're going to think straight away, who's already a widow? And you're probably going to think, who is poor or who needs it? But widows could be much, much more than just that. Who needs your help? And what are you going to do about that today? Well, he goes over there, and you would think because God has said to him, hey, I've got a widow, she's going to help you. So when you get to verse 12, and she says to Elijah, she meets him, she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I'm not going to help you. I don't know what God said to you. I'm not going to help you. She says this, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself, my son, that we may eat and die. She's getting ready for her last meal. And she says to Elijah, no way. So was God wrong? Because God said to Elijah, Elijah, pack up your stuff, go over to see this widow in Jezebel's hometown, Jezebel's hometown, and she will be ready to help you. 
Well, here's the thing with God's will. God never forces your hand. God presents circumstances. He presents cases. He presents opportunities. And our responsibility is to follow him and to place ourselves in those circumstances. Elijah says, absolutely, I understand this. And he says, hey, do not fear, which is a beautiful phrase. Jesus knows that phrase. Jesus himself uses it. Turn back, back with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 36, page 580. Mark chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 5, this is a great text here. While he was speaking, um, while he was speaking there, he came from the ruler's house, some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, you see this, Mark chapter 5, verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to give reference to the first testament, give authority to the whole Bible. Now, we were doing this last week in the young adult class, and so I'm just going to recap it real quick here with you guys, because I think it's a really good thing to know. We believe in sola scriptura. You understand that phrase? You've heard that before? What does that mean? The Bible and the Bible alone. Bible and the Bible alone. It interprets itself. Interprets itself. We do believe in sola scriptura. But we, unlike Luther, who Luther said, I believe in the Bible and the Bible alone, but I don't know, James, I'm not too happy with that book and a few other places. Eh, not too sure about that. So we, as Seventh-day Adventist Protestants, we believe in tota scriptura. Everything in the canon, inspired by God, the whole Bible. We also believe in another phrase that I can't even pronounce, but analogia scriptura. That means that there's going to be harmony in the Bible. And this is what I'm showing you today, that there's harmony in the Bible. One text inside here, one text over here. There's connections all the time. And Jesus does the same thing in John chapter 6 when he's on the sea and they're all scared about it. He uses the phrase, do not be afraid, do not fear, giving references back to the analogia, the harmony of the Bible. So God is constantly trying to pull us back saying, there is salvation inside here. And Elijah says this, you are in exile, do not fear. Those of you who understand death because you've lost somebody that you love, do not fear. Those of you who are struggling with your lives right now, do not fear. You're looking for the right job, do not fear. God is saying, I am with you. And by the end of this story here, you get to the end, verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, so neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, because the word of God endures forever. And that's what Elijah shared with her. Now, here's the thing. We get all excited about the miracle right now, and we start to work out, what did it look like? That, did she like put a little cup inside the jar and pull out the flour, and then whoop, it just filled up again? Did she pour the oil and put it down, and whoop, it just filled up again? And we spend all our time talking about, what does that miracle happen, and what does it mean, forgetting that that's not the point of the story, which is exactly the same thing with every miracle in the entire Bible. It's not about the miracle. It's about who's behind the miracle. It's about the authority behind the miracle. Elijah's doing the same thing. When Jesus went to the temple and he cleansed it all out, he establishes authority. When Elijah does this thing right now, he's establishing his authority that he gets the power from God. So the widow is just overwhelmed with this. She's really happy. She's eating food. She was about to have her last meal. And all is well until you get to verse 17 as the story kind of like takes you to this crescendo. And you're like, it's about to happen. And then verse 17, her son gets sick and has no more breath and dies. And she then 
with all the food in her belly, turns to Elijah and says, what did you do? It's interesting, isn't it? We're okay with God as long as God is blessing us. And as soon as things turn, it must have been God's fault. Not that life takes turns because it's a broken, sinful world. And even though Elijah has the power because of God to bring life to a decaying, dying world, she doesn't get it. So he grabs the boy, takes him upstairs, and Bible story says he lays over him. He asks God, why are you letting this happen? And then he prays over the boy three times, and then the boy comes to life. He brings the boy down, and she says here, wow, now I believe that you are the one. She says, I understand you are the man of God, verse 24, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. But here's the thing again, hindsight. When you read the Second Testament, there's a story, isn't there, where somebody comes along and their daughter is dead. What's the story? Everybody's like thinking, their daughter is dead, that's not Lazarus. Jairus' daughter <laughs> died, and Jesus is like Elijah, except for this. He doesn't have to ask God, hey God, why? He says, God, because I know where God rise walk, live, breathe, life happens. He takes the same story that they did here. He reenacts the same story because it's a memory inside their banks that they understand this. And that's why Jesus chose that miracle. Of all the miracles he could have done, he chose to raise a daughter of somebody who had lost them. He understands this. He's pulling them together saying, listen, you saw Elijah, you saw what he did. I'm gonna tell you the game changer, Jesus himself, the true king of the line that the exiles suffered through is here right now. And that's where the question comes now to question number three. Where is the power for life vested? In your career, in your parents, in your community, in. Where is the power for your life vested? When you think about your life, you put all your trust in your career until you lose your job. You put all your trust in your family until that breaks down. You put all your trust in the community. I asked somebody this week and said to them, you know, why do they come to church and what do they believe about church? And they said, community. And community is very, very important. And God knew that. And he wants us to have community. But that's not where your power is vested. Your power has to be vested in the word of God. Because God's word is endures forever. It stays faithful inside there. And this story, as it continues down this journey here, it actually has this uh, kind of like beautiful moment where she sees that life has come over. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, right? He says, death, where's your sting? <laughs> he mocks death. Because he's like, death, you have no control over us because God has power over life. And as the story comes to the end, you're thinking, what better could happen? And then there's an abrupt change. And we get to chapter 18. And chapter 18 is phenomenal. Chapter 18 is one of those blacklist Raymond Remington moments where you're going to have a face-to-face -face encounter that's just going to blow your mind. You can't believe it's going to take place. Chapter 18 is the, is the kind of the OK Corral high noon shootout that's taking place. It's what tons of movies are built on where they build all the pressure up, build all the pressure up until they have the huge showdown. And you would think that the story is about Ahab, Baal, and all of their little prophets that they have, and Elijah. But the story is really about God versus Baal. That's what the story is about. And chapter 18 is such an epic story. I'm going to have to read most of it because it's, it's, I read this so many times, and I read it in different translations. 
but it is a great story. It's written well. It starts off with this abrupt beginning, okay? You ready? And after many days, many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went himself to, to find Ahab, and the famine was severe in the land. And then the story slows all the way down to kind of a crawl. Because you're like, come on, go find him. Go talk to him. But it slows all the way down to a crawl because what it does is this. It introduces a character called Obadiah. Obadiah appears on the scene. And in this story, he tells you that when Jezebel took over everything, she had all of the prophets, all of Elijah's brothers in, in Christ who were all supporting the work that God had called them to do. She had all of them killed, but Obadiah was able to save a hundred prophets. He put them in caves, and he fed them bread and water, and he looked after them. And so Obadiah is the second in command to the king. And, and King Ahab says, man, we're running out of water. We've got so many of these prophets that we feed every day, 450 of them at the queen's table, and we really need to go find some new water supplies. So he splits off one way, and he says, Obadiah, you go the other way, and Obadiah is traveling, and all of a sudden, verse 7, as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said this, is this you, my lord, Elijah? And he answers, it is I. And then, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, what? He said, what? How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill him? Right? He's a man faithful of God. He's got a job that nobody wants him to have. He's considered a Judas, a betrayer, right? But he's been really faithful. Some people judge others because of the jobs they do and the work environment they're in. But this guy here, he's in a tough place, just like Daniel was in a tough place, faithful to God inside this place here. And he says to him, you're going to send me to Ahab? If I go there, what's going to happen? You're going to just disappear. In fact, verse 12 says this, and as soon as I've gone from you, this is what Obadiah says, hey, Elijah, as soon as I've gone from you and I go to see him, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you and I know not where. That's the first time that we hear about this, and we're going to hear about it many more times inside the Bible. You're going to read it in Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 1, where it says, And I, Ezekiel, in the Spirit of the Lord, took me, and I arrived in the valley of dry bones. You're going to read it about it in Acts, chapter 8, where Philip, he's like traveling and going to hear what God is saying, and suddenly the Spirit takes him after he's spoken to Philip, the eunuch, and he says the Spirit took him, and he went to another place. And the Spirit moves people physically from one place to another place. And so Obadiah knows this. He says, Elijah, if I go see the king, as soon as I turn my back, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> he's going to take you. And I'm going to bring the king back here. And he's going to say, where's Elijah? And you know what's going to happen? He's going to kill me. And three times he says he's going to die. And three times Elijah says to him, I need a face-to-face. -face. If I don't have a face-to-face... This is not going to happen. So, eventually, Obadiah, fear inside him, goes see King Ahab because he hears the promise from Elijah. King Ahab says, I will go see Elijah. And verse 17 says this, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is it you, troubler of Israel? You know, trouble is a good word and a great word. You know, I'll sometimes say to somebody, oh, hello, trouble. I've... Realize that probably I shouldn't say that. 
because it implies a certain little mischievous inside there, like, oh, hello, trouble, you're a pain, but I love you, it's all right, trouble. And it's kind of funny, because in London, that, that's what people will say to each other, like, oh, hello, trouble, how are you doing, trouble? And you're kind of being a little bit passive, but you're not being passive, you're kind of being straightforward as well, saying, you're a pain. But in the Bible, trouble is way, way deeper. Achan was the first guy to be called trouble of Israel right, in Joshua. And then later on, you're going to get Jonathan. You remember this story when we did the series on Samuel? Jonathan's going to come along. Man, is that the time? Wow, we're flying. Jonathan's going to come along, and he says, as he's there, he says to the people of Israel around him, the soldiers, because he's taken some honey, and he says to them, hey, I understand. I understand the difficulty here, but my father, King Saul, he is troubled, and he's a troubler. He's the one who's actually causing trouble. So King Ahab sees Elijah and says to him, you, you're a troubler. And Elijah says, no, 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 you, Ahab, you are the troubler. And he says, I have come here to tell you that God has a message for you. We haven't even got to verse 1 yet. We haven't returned to verse 1 yet. Verse 1 is just about to happen right now. And he says to him, it's time for us to have our face-to-face. And so then what happens, as Sean has shared so nicely inside the children's story here, is that they have this encounter where they bring all of the prophets of Baal and Elijah together on Mount Carmel. Verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? And it's a deep question, my friends. A question for us as well. How long are we gonna go limping? Like Revelation 3.16, Laodicean, lukewarm people. By the way, sometime next year, not this year, but next year, we're going to do a whole series on Revelation, and we will hit on this text again, but I'm telling you this, Revelation 3.16, Laodicea, talking about lukewarm, this is us today. We are the most committed, uncommitted people you could find, aren't we? We're committed to being uncommitted. That's what we are. We're like, yeah, you know, I really want to help the church sometime. It's even hard to get an appointment sometimes. It's like, yeah, let's meet. I'll get back to you sometime. Oh, I love coming to church sometime. I love to be able to give sometime. What do I have left over? That's what will go to the offering plate. Instead of realizing that you are committed to this tribe, this whole tension that we have between faith and consumerism and faith and capitalism and faith and racism, these are things that we try to avoid all the time. The Germans did it during World War II, right? They said, the Christian Germans said, I, I don't like Hitler and I, and I love God. I'm just not gonna make a decision or public statement about it because I wanna live. So I'm just gonna be uncommitted during the year. The, I'm committed to being uncommitted. That's what they basically did during that time. And God is saying, that's not good enough. You limp along, make your decision up, right? And so then... Baal comes up, and you hear the classic story here where Baal comes forward, and, and Elijah replies and says this when they've been praying to Baal and asking him all day long. It says here in verse 26, oh, Baal, answer us, but there was no voice, and no one answered, and the word that the prophet uses, and they limped along, Right? They limped around it all the time. He's bringing back the same reference. You as a people don't want to decide. I'm telling you, you're limping along here. And later on, the continues, they gush, they kill them, they cut themselves, and he says, still there's no voice, no one answered. Verse 29, no one paid attention. And then Elijah steps up. And you can imagine how deliberate he would have done this. And he picks up in verse 21, 12 stones. And he lays the 12 stones up, building an altar. Now you know, 
Nobody's allowed to build an altar anywhere else. It's only in Jerusalem that they worship, but he builds his altar up on Mount Carmel. He does the whole water thing. He asked them to put water on it, not once, but twice, but three times. And you can imagine how thirsty they are and how much water they would have wanted to disperse. And he's like, are you crazy? And he does this. And then verse 36, the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel and that I am a servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me. And he did. And the fire came down and it consumed the entire altar. The stone, the dust, the fire must have been an intense heat. It would have knocked them all down to the ground, I'm pretty sure. It would have been overwhelming to them as it left only a crater, like a meteor came down and took it all out. And their result here is this. The Lord, verse 39 the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What Elijah does next, God didn't ask him. He calls the people together, says, I'm glad you've decided to follow God. Go chase those 400 guys and kill them. Kills the 400 Baal prophets, which apparently was the custom at the time because Jezebel, when she took power, she killed all the prophets that she could find. And Elijah does the same thing right now. But we have one final question today. Question number four. What more do you need today to follow Jesus? And I want to end on this final passage here because I think this final passage was an inspiration not only to me when I read it again this week, but I hope it's an inspiration to you as well. Elijah knows that God has made his promise true. So he goes up to the top and it says here that he bows down with his head between his legs and he he prays to God. He says to his servant, go, go look and see if you can see the rain coming. The servant goes and he comes back and Elijah bows again and prays. And seven times this happens. And on the seventh time, the servant comes back running and says this. And the seventh time, verse 34, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. You ever heard of that phrase before? In the great controversy, page 640, it says that when we look forward to Jesus Christ coming back, we will see a cloud in the east, the size of the hand of a man. And when you know that, you know that your Messiah is coming home and he's going to take us off this planet. That's where she got the inspiration from. The hope, the symbol of hope, is that he saw this cloud the size of a hand out in the Mediterranean coming towards him. And he doesn't wait because he knows this is true. And so he runs down to Ahab. He says, Ahab, get in your horse and go. And Ahab is like, what? Trust me, God's coming. The rain's coming. And run fast with me. And I tell you this today. I need you to run fast with me too. We got a lot of work to do in this church. A lot of work to do in this community. A lot of work to do in our families. A lot of work to do with each other. And we can't trot along anymore. We got to run fast. Faster than the horse. Faster than Ahab. Because we see that coming. We see that Jesus is coming. And for that reason, and many more, I need you to run with me. So, you have your cards with you, your connect cards. They're inside your worship guide. You wanna run fast? You wanna move from your commitment to uncommitted to becoming actually committed? Then fill it in. Put it inside one of the offering altars with your offering. Put it inside the little watering can at the top there. Give it to one of the pastors. Make that choice. Make that choice, step up your game. Time to run a little bit faster. May Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender.
Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage, daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. May Jesus bless you with the power to make Jesus all.